Actually, I'm Adam Conover, and let's talk a little bit more about misinformation today. You know that it's out there. You know that it's bad for you. You know that you're getting it anyway. Social media spits a constant stream of vaccination misinformation, lies about our democracy, hate speech, and garden variety people yelling at each other into our eye holes and ear holes every single day. Misinformation are the chunks in the toxic soup we sip every time we open our apps. Now, We've talked about this on the show before. A couple of weeks back, we had Mike Caulfield, uh, incredible, wonderful media literacy researcher and educator who told us how we can fight back against it in our own lives, how we can use his SIFT method to separate good information from bad information and help our friends and neighbors do the same. But let's talk now about who's responsible for this misinformation. There's a little bit of a question about that, isn't there? I mean, these social media companies that we're getting all this misinformation from, well, they don't want us to think they're at fault, right? I mean, they'd like to avoid responsibility for the horrible effects of the content they promote. And, you know, why wouldn't they? Not taking responsibility is way easier and cheaper than, you know, doing the right thing. But I'd argue they are at fault and they are responsible because the amount of control they have over what vast numbers of Americans and people worldwide see and believe is truly stunning. See, the internet today is way different than it was when it got started, or at least when I got started on it a couple decades ago. When companies like Facebook or YouTube were getting going, well, you'd just post a thing. You know, you'd upload a video, you'd make a post. Some people would watch it. If they liked it, they'd email it to their friend and say, hey, check out this video of this guy singing the Numa Numa song in his house. It's funny. You'd watch it. That'd be it. It was hard to imagine any single post being that big of a deal, right? But today, social media is increasingly dominant. People spend, on average, about two and a half hours on social media every day across the planet. That's a worldwide number. That includes about 40 minutes of Facebook per person and a whopping billion hours of YouTube every day with a B. Okay, so social media companies aren't just neutral platforms where we share funny videos. They are now essential players in where people get and share important information. About one fifth of Americans rely on social media to get their news. A fifth. That's more than rely on local or network TV news. But uh, needless to say, no matter what you think about the 11 p.m., if it bleeds, it leads. Man shot his wife and ate his dog live at 11. Whatever you think about that kind of news. The news on social media is a lot worse. Pew found that those who rely on social media for news are less likely to get the facts right about the coronavirus and politics and more likely to hear some unproven claims. That's a quote from Pew. So even though more people are getting their news from social media than TV, the quality of that news is, in a word, shittier. And unlike the TV news, Social media companies are constantly trying to avoid responsibility for the garbage they promote on their platforms. See, these companies would have us believe 
that they're just platforms, right? They just give us a way to upload a video and host it for free or to start a group to chat with our friends. Oh, they don't control what we see. They just give us a way to talk to each other. But this is disingenuous at best and a lie at worst. It might have been true in 2005, right? Numa Numa guy uploads the video. People email it around. That's all that happens. But today... These sites work very differently. Today, all of these companies monitor the content that's posted. They monitor how we engage with it. And they make deliberate choices to push forward some posts and bury others. Whatever makes the user spend more time on the platform, that is what they push us. And sure, some of this is done by algorithms. It's a computer doing it, yes. But those computer programs are not forces of nature they were written by people at the companies and prioritizing business goals that the companies have okay they didn't wash up on a beach one day the people at these companies are responsible for the algorithms and thus responsible for the results but these few massive companies facebook amazon youtube twitter They dominate our media ecosystem. They are media companies, just like the giants of a couple decades ago were. These are the ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox of our present day age. So when they say that it's very hard or close to impossible to stop hate speech and misinformation, that's not true. They can control what's on their platforms. They just choose not to. Now, that is my personal opinion based on the facts that I have seen and my own judgment of the matter. I hope you found it convincing, but you don't have to take my word for it to quote LeVar Burton, a man who means a great deal to me. No, instead, you can just listen to the direct evidence we've got for you here on the show today. My guest today is Karen Howe, a reporter at MIT Technology Review. She got tremendous access to a Facebook AI team trying to fight misinformation on the platform, which was then directly away from that task in order to keep Facebook big, growing, and profitable. This is about as close to a smoking gun as we're going to get. It is an incredible story, and she's an incredibly talented and brave reporter who wrote about this to great acclaim just a few weeks ago. We are so excited to have her on the show. Please welcome Karen Howe. We're here with Karen Howe. Karen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me about Let's jump right into it. Tell me about this uh, piece that you have in the MIT Technology Review about Facebook and AI, how you came to write it, and what what was the big surprise for you when diving into the piece? So this piece is a, it's a nine-month investigation into the responsible AI team at Facebook. And what is interesting is when I spent the nine months trying to figure out what this team does, what I realized was the story is actually about what it doesn't do. Um, So I thought, you know, if Facebook has a responsible AI team, it must be working on the algorithms that have sort of been criticized over the years for amplifying misinformation, for exacerbating polarization, these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, And the team doesn't do that. Oh. <laughs> and so and so the crux of the piece um, is, is sort of about this team and its failures. Um, but it's also about this revelation that Facebook has studied and known about the fact that its recommendation algorithms promote and amplify misinformation, hate speech, extremism, all of these things for years. But its team doesn't do anything about that. Um, and <laughs> in other parts of the company, it's sort of 
halted or weakened initiatives that were actively trying to address these issues, specifically because addressing these issues would hurt the company's growth. Um, so that's that's kind of like, <laughs> it kind of encapsulates what I was surprised by is I just thought going into this story when I learned that Facebook had a responsible AI team, that there was a good faith effort at the company um, to address many of the challenges that it's publicly been talking about as very technically challenging and things that they're hard at work on. Um, but there, there just, there is no real coordinated effort to actually do this. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty stunning. I mean, in the piece you're, you have a, you're speaking with, you have a lot of access to, you know, the, the head of the responsible AI program or the, you know, extremely highly placed, uh, folks in AI at Facebook. And it's sort of, if I can, get into the meta piece a little bit, it sort of sounds like Facebook was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to show how great this program is and how seriously we're taking it. We're going to talk to this journalist and and let let them know that we really care about, uh, you know, safe AI, responsible AI, fair AI, whatever you want to call it. But then when you actually engaged with them, you realized, wait, but this is this team is not doing the thing <laughs> that they that we all think that they're supposed to be doing, that they were sort of saying that they were going to address at some point. Exactly. Exactly. I think, and um, the challenge of writing this piece was actually coming to that realization because it's hard to really identify when something is missing. It's much easier to write about the things that are present. Mm. Um, And so, but I, but I kept having, while I was reporting the piece and talking with this team, I kept having this nagging feeling that, you know, if I talk to the average person on the street and say, hey, Facebook has a responsible AI team, what do you think they do? That it would be completely disconnected from the way that they were describing their work and their responsibilities. Um, and it was through, it was like eight months into my nine months of reporting that it finally clicked for me that, wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> that there is, I, I, it's not, I'm not going crazy by thinking that the average person would completely misinterpret the responsible AI team. Um, yeah. the responsible AI teams work. There's actually legitimate reasons why people would think that the responsible AI team does one thing and there are legitimate reasons why Facebook is not actually doing that thing, but still using the term responsible AI as a branding mechanism. Wow. There's so many angles we could get into this from, but let's start at it from the one you just said. I mean, if you asked me walking down the street, if you ambushed me with a microphone and said, Facebook's got a responsible AI team, what are they working on? I would say, they're probably working on misinformation, QAnon, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people uh, undermining, you know, election results. Uh, you know, maybe uh, I've heard about the fact that the UN has implicated Facebook in like the, uh, you know, a genocide in Myanmar that like mm-hmm. misinformation being spread. I mean, you can tell me more about that than I probably know, but I would think, okay, you know, we know we know that there are these algorithmic problems and that that would be what Facebook is trying to address. Um, and those are real. Those, so let's start there. Those are real problems, correct? Like I'm not making that up. That's not. Yes. Okay. Tell me a little bit. Yeah. Those that. are, those are real problems that Facebook itself um, was grappling with when they created this team. So this team was created in the aftermath of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And at that time there were multiple um, angles at which Facebook was being criticized. One for the, the actual scandal. The Can fact you remind that me what, this, what that was? Yeah. Yeah. There was this, this political um, consultancy that was using the personal data of tens of millions of Americans um, without their consent to 
influence how they voted. And specifically, they were they were using the um, user targeting algorithms that Facebook already had on their platform and weaponizing them to um, get the right content, often misleading content in front of very specific people so that um, they could they could sway how they thought about different political candidates. And most infamously, they did this for um, Donald Trump's campaign. Um, but there was also this conversation around Russian interference at the time, like Russian hackers are also weaponizing right. these user targeting algorithms to sway the election in Trump's favor. And um, there were also the conversations around filter bubbles, like the fact that um, a lot of like half of America was shocked that Trump was elected in the first place. And people realized that they were completely unaware of some of the conversations that were happening and the other half of America, um, that was also all about these algorithms kind of tailoring the content so specifically to you and your interests that you kind of lose awareness of other people's interests yeah. and the other debates that are happening. Um, so that was the that was the the like bigger context in which the responsible AI team was then created. So this was very much on Facebook's radar um, when when they decided to put resources into a so-called responsible AI team. And there's also the issue of polarization, right? That uh, the more that, you know, we've realized and according to reporting, Facebook themselves know that when you are trying to maximize engagement, that their algorithms, which are designed to maximize engagement, our time spent on the site, end up pushing people more polarized content and in and actually make the people themselves more polarized at the end of the day. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Like there have been um, efforts, not coordinated, but sort of bottoms up efforts at Facebook where individual employees or or um, teams will start studying what actually is uh, the effect of Facebook's algorithms on this question of polarization. Mm -hmm. And I spoke with an engineer who was on a team that was studying this problem and conducted myriad studies on this thing. And basically found that because of the way that Facebook's content recommendation algorithms will will tailor things to what you like, what you want to share, what you click on and maximize that kind of engagement, it will just keep feeding you content that gets you pigeonholed further and further into your beliefs and like mm-hmm. really helps you dig your heels into your beliefs. Um, on things like he, he was saying, like, this isn't just a presidential election, something big like that, this can be like any, a, a local school board election. Yeah. Like they could like measure that you would get more and more polarized on your local school board election because the content that you kept being fed was sending you into a rabbit hole where you, where you weren't actually getting other information, other signals that might challenge those beliefs anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just that basic thing of, and this has always been my intuition. And then I've, you know, you write it really starkly in, in your reporting. So I feel a little gratified, but this idea that, you know, what we engage with tends to be the things that make us angry or upset, uh, that mm-hmm. piss us off. Like I get, you know, I'm interested in labor issues. So I get mad every time I see an article that says Jeff Bezos, you know, the national labor relations <laughs> board just said that Amazon fired a bunch of workers for organizing or something like that. Right. Those stories yeah. always make me angry. And I always click on them. I click on them. I retweet them. Uh, I'm not on Facebook personally, but whatever platforms I'm on, I share them, et cetera. And, Mm -hmm. 
you know, they get me agitated. And so therefore I get more of those things which make me agitated because that's what the algorithm is designed to do. It's it's giving me whatever I interact with. I interact with the things that make me mad, gives me more of those things. And then since I'm always going in the angry direction, I'm like falling sort of down a rabbit hole. And and this is exactly but, but this is what's actually happening. Like Facebook themselves know about this dynamic. This is I'm not making this up. Yes, this is actually happening. This is like internal studies, internal research that has been done that is repeatedly confirmed that this is a thing that happens. Wow. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's this graph here in your piece that you write that Mark Zuckerberg himself was using that shows that like the the engagement of as it becomes closer and closer to what Facebook prohibits goes mm-hmm. up like it's like a, a line graph that's flat with the level of engagement. And then right before it becomes something that Facebook would ban, presumably because it's Holocaust denial or something like that. Yeah. Th- the things that are most engaged with are the things that are almost like Facebook illegal because they're so inflammatory is that's that's wild that yeah. they know that there. Yeah. And it's interesting because when Mark actually published that, that chart, um, it was, he published it in 2018 when he did a series of like public Facebook posts that were about how he's going to fix Facebook. And then this particular installment was focused on like, how am I going to use content moderation to fix Facebook? And he published this chart and, and basically said, I mean, this is just human nature. People like engaging in outrageous stuff. Mm-hmm. So regardless of where we place this policy line, um, regardless of where we draw the line for what content is banned on the platform, it's always going to show this swoop upwards of engagement as we approach that line. Um, but what he doesn't really acknowledge and is sort of the way that Facebook often talks about these things is there's this implicit assumption that there's no other way to design Facebook other than to maximize engagement. Mm. So they're like, oh yeah, this is just a human nature problem and there's nothing we can really do to solve it. So this, this is how it is. And it's like, wait a minute, you were the one that chose to maximize engagement, which, which then your is what incentivizes your algorithms to keep propagating this like hateful extremist misinfo content to more and more people because that's the content that gets the most engagement. Yeah. So it they always kind of like use I don't know, they just talk about these things in ways that that um shirk their own responsibility in the matter and and pretend that um it's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that they can do about it. Right. They say, oh, this is just what people like to do for eight hours a day to the exclusion of everything else <laughs> because of the slot machine system that we've created specifically <laughs> in order to keep them sitting sitting in their chairs on their phones in front of their computers for exactly. that period of time. They just like doing this thing that we've designed to do exactly this. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a little... It's kind of a fucked up point of view. Um, you don't need to editorialize. I'll editorialize. You're the journalist. You'll, you 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 keep play close to the vest. But okay, so so, but Facebook in their public announcements in this blog post that Zuckerberg made in presumably him talking to Congress and all this sort of thing, they talk about taking this issue seriously of misinformation, uh, algorithmic polarization, these problems that are. And by the way, I think all of us. 
have experienced the negative effects of this in our own lives. All of us have a relative or a neighbor who's been sort of like driven mad by the algorithm and is like ingesting these weird ideas. And we all, you know, this is like a yeah. an, an issue of national concern. So Facebook says that they want to address this. They then have bring on an AI team or they say, we're going to solve this with our AI team. Mm-hmm. And they proceed to not solve it. What happened instead? <laughs> um. It's a complicated question. So Facebook, I, I, just to take a step back, like Facebook has three AI teams. Um, and I think part of part of Facebook's, I, I don't know if this is intentional or unintentional, but it, it seems to me that Facebook's tactics um, around communicating about its company involves some organizational confusion where mm-hmm. it can sort of just evoke like our AI team is working on this, but they won't really specify mm-hmm. which AI team mm-hmm what they're actually doing, um, how it relates to the other teams. But they have three AI teams. One that is a fundamental AI research lab that just does basic science and has absolutely nothing to do with the platform. It doesn't actually work on any platform issues. Hmm. Um, they also have an applied research team that's supposed to, when the f- basic science research team serendipitously comes across some kind of AI technology that might be useful for Facebook, the applied team kind of is supposed to then pluck that out of the lab and put it into Facebook's products. So there's like the, the example that Facebook loves to give is they the fundamental lab had figured out some way to translate languages really well using AI. And then now that is the main thing that Facebook uses to translate. Like when you when you're like scrolling through and your friend posts something in a different language and it says like translate this text like that is the AI that's powering mm. that feature. Um, but the responsible AI team is the third team. And it's, it like, we've already talked about everything that it doesn't do, but it, it basically is now specifically working on fairness, transparency, and privacy. Like these three things that they've deemed as responsible AI. Okay, those are all um, good nouns, but they uh, don't <laughs> seem to be the nouns we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what's interesting is like fairness and privacy are both things that um, there is sort of impending regulation to address and actually transparency as well. Like GDPR, um, which is like the European Union's Mm -hmm. big regulation for how to think about regulating AI, how to think about regulating data systems they kind of evoke these three ideas, like the, these systems should be fair, these systems should be transparent, these systems should be private. And so mm-hmm. it's not actually a coincidence that Facebook is like working on these three specific things. Um, but the earliest thing that they started working on that I was kind of digging into was their fairness work. Um, and fairness in the AI context refers to the fact that algorithms can unintentionally be discriminatory. Yeah. Um, and Facebook has actually been sued by the U.S. government for its ad targeting algorithms perpetuating housing discrimination, mm. where its ads will learn that they should only show houses for sale to white users and houses for rent to black users. Mm. And that is illegal and um, very clearly a violation of, of like uh, yeah. um, unequal access to, to housing opportunities. These are very real problems and they're legitimate problems that Facebook has, but it's not an either or situation where you can only work on one thing and not the other. You yeah. can definitely work on fairness issues and you can work on misinformation. 
Um, and so there's like a very clear reason why Facebook chooses to work on one versus the other versus not the other. And that's because um, they work on things that really support Facebook's growth, but they don't work on things that undermine Facebook's growth. Right. Um, so what I what I kind of realized with this fairness stuff is they really started ramping up this work around the time when a Republican-led Congress was starting to escalate their rhetoric around tech giants having anti-conservative bias. And like like Trump was like tweeting hashtag stop the bias in the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections. Um, and these tech companies were starting to get overwhelmed by attacks from the public, um, the conservative public conservative user base saying like, you're censoring us, your, um, al- your ranking algorithms aren't promoting our content, your content moderation algorithms are deleting our content. Um, and so Facebook, then Mark Zuckerberg, then like a week after Trump tweeted this hashtag stop the bias, he, he was, he called a meeting with the head of the responsible AI team and was like, we need to figure out this AI bias thing. We need to figure out how to get rid of any kind of bias in our content moderation algorithms. Um, And for me, I mean, it was, Facebook never admitted that Mark asked anything related to anti-conservative bias in that meeting. But for me, the timing of the meeting was just like so perfect um, because it's the first time that he ever met with the head of the responsible AI team. And this was seven, six or seven months after it had been created. Um, and after that, they, they, they just basically started really aggressively working on this thing. So, so, so too, I imagine to then be able to definitively say we aren't, we do not have anti-conservative bias because we, our algorithms are fair. But okay. This is a long way from, (laughs) from the, the issue at hand that, you know, again, everyone is talking about Congress is concerned about misinformation, polarization from Facebook's algorithm. They create an AI team that they say that is going to work on that problem. And instead, what that team works on is making sure that their AI is unbiased. And then specifically, it's focusing not on the issue of racial bias, gender bias or anything else, but bias against conservatives on Facebook, which is we're now very far away from the original <laughs> idea. And in fact, doesn't that goal actually conflict with the original goal of misinformation? Because I'm not going to say that everybody, every conservative who is concerned about, you know, their views being suppressed is spreading misinformation. But I know for a fact that some people who spread misinformation on social media, when they are stopped from doing that they say well there's a bias against conservative speech it's like no 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 you were you were spreading misinformation about the election or about QAnon or what that's what the QAnon people say when they are kicked yeah. off a platform they say there this is an example of anti-conservative bias so it seems like this is now Facebook working on the opposite of what the problem was yeah <laughs> okay Pretty, pretty much. Um, yeah. I mean, so like going back to the, like, so the, the, the funny thing is Facebook never has never actually really said that the response way I team specifically is working on misinformation. It has said the AI team, or we, we are building AI to work on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying of like, it doesn't really specify which team is working on what. Um, and then you just automatically assume the responsible AI team is working on it because the name is responsible AI. Yeah. Um, but there is another team that um, it's the applied applied research 
team that is working on catching misinformation. And, and we can get into that later. But then the responsible AI team, yeah, they are working on bias. And it is from, from the upper levels of management is motivated, um, based off of my reporting, I, I believe it was motivated by this anti-conservative bias. But for the people on the team, I think they kind of perhaps also saw an opportunity of, well, if we build tools to get rid of anti-conservative bias, then we might also, it's the same tools to then uproot, um, to try and get rid of racial bias, mm-hmm. try and get rid of gender bias. So they they sort of had good intentions of like, well, let's just like hitch on to the ride and, and try and like do something good um, now that we have the leadership buy-in um, to do this. But then the issue is what you get at where there are legitimate ways that this like notion of fairness or this like this like pursuit of fairness for growth or for um, ridding anti-conservative bias will then also undermine efforts to clean up misinformation on the platform. So there were other parts of the company outside of the responsible AI team that sort of around the same time that the responsible AI team was working on this were already using the idea of fairness or the idea of anti-conservative bias to stop efforts to use the AI algorithms to get rid of misinformation. So there's, there's this policy team led by Joel Kaplan. um, And there was this one engineer who described to me or one researcher who described to me, they would work on developing these AI models, these AI algorithms for catching misinformation, like, um, anti-vax misinformation, it would, they would test it out. It would work really well. It, 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 um, measurably reduce the amount of anti-vax misinformation that was on the platform. They would then go to deploy it. And then the policy team would say, wait a minute, this specific algorithm is affecting our conservative users more than liberal users. And that is anti-conservative bias. So you need to change the algorithm (laughs) so that it affects both (laughs) groups equally so that it's a fair algorithm. Uh. And then the researcher was like the, that just made the algorithm meaningless. So we did all this work and it doesn't results in nothing. It means it does nothing. If it, if it treats every, if it treats every single person exactly equally on the platform, well, the whole point of it is to suppress misinformation and some people spread more misinformation than others. If it doesn't penalize users who spread more misinformation because it's trying to, quote, be unbiased, it is going to literally do nothing. It's like giving every student in the class a C rather than picking, <laughs> like giving the better ones. an I mean, it's it's the participation trophy of algorithms is what it is. How about that? <laughs> Uh, to take a, to take a popular conservative talking point, it goes beyond what I was saying before. You, you're saying that they literally created a useful bit of AI that started weeding out dangerous misinformation, medical misinformation, for example, about vaccines, yes. and then a different unit in Facebook that was concerned about the reaction in the conservative community said, "Let's not use this algorithm." Let you know, canceled uh, because. Because we're worried about how conservatives will react. Like, that's what happened at Facebook. Yes. And and, and this is just one example. Um, the There were many, many, many examples. And this was such a huge problem that, like, the team that worked on creating these algorithms had serious retention issues because their work was never being, was never being used. They, wow. would, they would do all this work 
put all this investment in and then it would be scrapped because it was demonstrating, quote unquote, anti-conservative bias, which, by the way, like there have been studies since um, that have looked into do does Facebook actually have anti-conservative bias? And from from the assessment of what kind of content thrives on Facebook, there's no actual evidence to suggest that there's a suppression, a systematic suppression of conservative content. Conservative content actually thrives yeah. more on Facebook than liberal content. So um, the top 10 yeah. Facebook publishers are what it's like Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino or whatever his name is, like all the, you know, those Fox News does extremely well. Uh, those are the most successful pieces of information. It's just the, you know, the people who are publishing them are also constantly claiming that they are help, help. I'm being oppressed. Like, uh, yeah. you know, and Facebook seems very reactive to that, perhaps because. Uh, again, maybe this is me editorializing, perhaps because that is where they get so much of their traffic from is from that. Audience. Yeah, yeah, completely. I think there's a there's very strong reason to believe that that's relevant. And also <laughs> the fact that, you know, um, it took a lot of like very wishy washy stances on moderating away certain um, certain types of misinformation or hate speech when Trump was in office and then. They made their biggest content moderation decision when it became clear that Trump was leaving office, a.k.a. removing Trump from the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there is a lot of evidence that like Facebook has sort of played this dance of just keeping the people in power happy so that they don't they, they don't make themselves vulnerable to regulation. <laughs> and that that would hinder its growth. Right. Like, OK, we'll we'll finally remove the president once the president's no longer in power, because now he doesn't have any power to actually penalize us. Like now there's been a regime change. So, but Hey, maybe, uh, you know, maybe if he wins again, if he runs again and wins, Oh, back on the platform, he goes because they'll, you know, be, be, you know, yeah. uh, Obeying power once again. Um, tell me about the piece of it though, where in addition to, you know, the, the Facebook, is focused so much on anti-conservative bias, supposed anti-conservative bias, that they kneecap their own effort to you know, make sure their algorithms aren't polarizing people and spreading misinformation. That's one piece, but it seems to me the even bigger piece is Facebook's addiction to growth that you write about, that mm-hmm. they constantly want to grow, they constantly want more misinformation. Actually, you know what? We have to take a really short break, so I want you to tell me about this right after we get back. We'll be right back with more Karen Howe. Okay, we're back with Karen Howe. So before I so elegantly went to break in a way that was completely pre-planned and not at all chaotic, uh, I was asking you about uh, how Facebook's addiction to growth gets in the way of them fighting uh, algorithmic misinformation and polarization. Can you tell me about that? So going back to this chart that Mark Zuckerberg published where he was showing that like things that are more likely to be misinformation are then more likely to get engagement like that chart. There's a problem then of incentives where if we're telling Facebook to clean up the misinformation on their platform, but that's the content that gets the most engagement and engagement is what helps Facebook grow. 
then maybe it should just not clean up the misinformation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that's that's sort of like there's this like pervasive issue where a lot of employees at Facebook, it's not like people are evil at Facebook. It's not like there are people intentionally being like, mwahaha, we're like destroying society. Um, it's, it's like Facebook is a very metrics driven company and there are a lot of employees that are doing their smart, small part of the puzzle, um, in this like giant corporation. Um, and the, the goals of like how they're rewarded, how they're paid, how they're promoted, all of those things are tied to engagement metrics, um, or business metrics that the company maintains. Mm -hmm. And so when you have like each employee that's like working on these, the, on trying to optimize for like the specific metric that they've been told will help them get promoted. It sort of creates this like mass emerging effect across the company of the company, just like doing everything like growth at all costs, pursuing growth at all costs. Um, and so there are like very clear incentives and for people who work on misinformation to maybe not do it sometimes or people who want to genuinely do good on the platform and like fix some of these issues when they're told by leadership, that's not really a good project for you to pursue. It's very reasonable that then they would be like, okay, well, I'm not going to keep bashing my head on something that leadership has actively told me not to pursue. I'm going to like switch to working on something else so that I can achieve my quarterly goals and get promoted. Um, So yeah, there's this whole culture of growth. I think it causes a lot of, this a lot of people at the company to just end up working on things that are not actually core to the issues of the platform, but on more like tangential things um, that the leadership directs them to do. Yeah. I mean, the old adage, right, is that you get what you measure and Mm -hmm. Facebook measures growth above all else and engagement Mm -hmm. as a way to get to that growth. And they don't really seem to measure (laughs) like algorithmic misinformation or polarization. They're measuring those things to a certain extent, but if their number one priority is going to continue to be growth and then someone is working on, okay, I'm working on a project that's going to stamp out misinformation, but then that, that project is also reducing growth a little bit or reducing engagement a little bit. Um, then that is not going to be prioritized. They're going to say, oh, what uh, you know, that's really interesting, but maybe don't work on that. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So like to, to be more concrete about like how this happens on like a day-to-day level, there, um, so engineers at Facebook have sort of the ability to create algorithms that um, they deploy onto the platform for various things, whether that's like cleaning up misinformation or changing the way that content is ranked in your newsfeed um, or like targeting you with ads. There are like lots of engineers, like 25% of engineers at least are all, um, all have the ability to like make, to train these algorithms, deploy them, and then um, like kind of like tweak and keep optimizing the way that the platform works. Um, and the, there's like a very rigorous process for evaluating these algorithms and which algorithms actually make it into the live production of the platform. Um, and the primary evaluation is how does it actually affect the company's top line engagement metrics? How does it affect likes, shares, comments, and other other things? Um, and the way that they do that is they will create it. A train an algorithm, they'll then like test it on a subset of users on Facebook and then use that experiment to measure 
whether mm-hmm. or not those particular users then had um, reduced engagement. And if there's like if there's reduced engagement, then most more often than not, the algorithm is completely discarded. Mm. Um, and sometimes there will be discussions where, okay, it, it reduced engagement, but it like did really, really well on reducing misinformation. So like that trade-off is a good trade-off and we're going to make that trade-off. But they, but like when the algorithm does that, it's no longer this automated process of like, okay, check, we're going to deploy it. There's actually like a conversation with like multiple stakeholders in different parts of the organization that mm. then have to like hash out whether or not this is worth it. And then different people will have different opinions. And most of the time the conclusion is it's not worth it. Um, and then the team has to go back to the drawing board and, and train a new algorithm that will try to achieve all the same things as its first algorithm without actually depressing the engagement. I mean, the picture that you're painting is that the algorithms can't be the solution to this problem because the problem at root is that the same thing that we're begging Facebook to address is the exact thing that their business model produces. I mean, you're, what we've said, the chart that Zuckerberg showed everybody shows us that like the exact the exact shit that we want to stop is what brings them the most engagement and growth. And so yeah. like it it seems like to an extent it is a zero sum game that by reducing the stuff that we don't want to have the misinformation the polarization we're going to be reducing their engagement and they have specifically constructed a business model that relies on maximizing engagement and so to a certain extent are we asking a crack dealer to stop selling crack and saying, hey, you know, this crack is killing people. And the crack dealer is like, oh, I agree. I agree. I got to get a handle on that. And then they're like, well, I'll, I'll put a task force together and see if I can study, uh, you know. But at the end of the day, it's like, no, you need them to stop selling crack. And they're not going to. I mean, I'm not sorry. It's I don't want to bring the language of the war on drugs into this. I now feel a little bit you know, conflicted about that. But you see the, the point I'm making. Yeah, I it. It's a good analogy. I think what I sort of realized in the process of reporting this particular story is like self-regulation, it just doesn't work because it's not that like, you know, I think the way that people often cover Facebook is like Mark just gets to make whatever the whatever decisions he wants. And then like the company moves the way that he moves, um, which is true to a certain extent. But like also Facebook exists within its own system, which is capitalism and yeah. the way that capitalism incentivizes companies to operate is very much to continue growing and to continue pursuing profit. So um, if we're, if we only have certain incentives that make Facebook do certain things and we don't have counter incentives from regulatory bodies to then give Facebook a different signal for what they should be doing, then it's just going to keep chasing growth and chasing profit. That's, I mean, yeah, there's not, there's not anything. Yeah. What like what else would they do? But uh, yeah, we need to like we need to do it. They're not going to do it themselves. We need to, yeah. as a society, make some rules around you know what this thing is, this new pernicious thing that they've created. But is that not why Facebook is now trying to change the subject? They're trying to they're saying oh they're seeing all right. There's going to be regulation. We see it on the horizon. It's happened in Europe around privacy. What if it happens around misinformation too? So let's make a big deal about how we're doing something about it. But 
shift the conversation. So we're not actually talking about misinformation. We're working on AI bias, which is a comfortable topic that there's been a lot written about that conservatives are mad about too. And maybe we can just direct everybody. Oh, look what we're doing with AI bias. They can avoid regulation on the issue that is the real issue. But if we addressed it, it would actually reduce their growth and their profits. Exactly. Yeah. And I think Facebook does this a lot. They like kind of redirect the public's attention and talk about things in a way that makes very simple problems sound very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I was writing this piece, um, my editor in chief said this really good point, which is like, they like this piece is I was getting I was like, oh, my God, this is so convoluted. Like I'm trying to explain to people that what AI bias is, but then how it's like different from misinformation, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, actually, it's quite simple. And the only reason why it feels complicated is because Facebook is trying to overcomplicate it. Facebook has just had certain problems for years now that people have been criticizing it about and it's not doing anything about it. That's like very simple. It's, yeah. It's, If it's not as difficult as Facebook is making it seem, do you feel that if they really wanted to, they could address misinformation on the platform? Because there is the issue of if they're trying to do it with AI in the first place, well, can't misinformation peddlers just get around the AI, learn, oh, if I, you know, instead of QAnon, I say PAnon, and now, (laughs) you know, we'll get ahead of the algorithm for a little bit or whatever it is, um, is, you know, it is there a way to moderate their way out of the problem with uh, with AI or not? Or is there a more fundamental problem at play here? I think so. To, to answer the first question, like, could Facebook actually fix this problem? Yes, I absolutely think that they could. Does their current approach of using AI to try and moderate away the problem actually work? No, I don't think it, it, it ever <laughs> will. Um, and that's just because of like the fundamental limitations of AI itself. Um, it, it, AI, like you would need to have a nuanced understanding of human language in order to right. effectively moderate misinfo. And if you were to survey AI experts about this, the average amount of time that they, they believe it'll take for us to get to AI that actually has nuanced human understanding um, it's like upwards of decades. So, yeah, you, you, I don't think we, you would we have time. Not just to understand like how human language works, but also like say you, you're trying to make an AI that's going to stamp out vaccine misinformation. Well, it needs to not under, only understand human language. It needs to like understand how vaccines work so that it can... <laughs> So they can say, oh, uh, vaccines can't actually change your DNA because it's an RNA vaccine. And here's how RNA works. And I've read all the papers on this. And I know that, you know, this is not true and that this is the new tactic that, you know. And yeah. 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 And it needs to understand like culture and history because people use cultural and historical references all the time in their language that then insinuate certain things that are not explicitly said. Mm -hmm. It needs to understand sarcasm, which is when like, you know, like from an AI's perspective, it's like, what do you mean that you're saying literally the opposite of what you mean? Like, (laughs) How do you actually like it's just um, it's it's that's not possible. But I think the way that Facebook would address this issue First of all, I think I, I sort of increasingly started to believe that it's just not possible for it to address it at the current scale that the company exists. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's it's the business model. It's the fundamental assumption that they need to keep maximizing engagement. That is the root of these problems. Yeah. And if it were to change that assumption and change the way that it recommends content on the platform, whether that's 
um, the posts in your newsfeed or the ads that you click or the um, the groups that you're recommended to join, like all of those recommendation systems, if if the fundamental um, objective of those recommendation algorithms was not engagement, but something else, then they would significantly reduce a lot of the hateful content and misinformation content spread on the platform. Yeah. But they're not, they're not about to do that because they're gonna, I mean, that's what they're focused on. I mean, is is there a point at which they could ever not be focused on engagement and growth above all else? I mean, they already have like what a good third to half of people in the world on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, if they didn't, if they stopped focusing on that, I think the company would sort of like cease to exist. <laughs> it would just, I, yeah, I don't know. I, or it would be smaller. I don't know. It's like, what, how would Facebook actually work if it didn't focus on that? Who knows? But yeah. it'd probably be a lot healthier for everyone. So you feel that what we need is some outside like rules of the road, like regulation of, of some kind, or that is the way to address the yeah. problem. Uh, to some degree. Yeah, I do think that there needs to be external regulation of this issue. Um, what that regulation might look like is definitely outside of my expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I think I, I'm, I'm optimistic that um, it seems like there's a, there's now enough political will on both sides of the aisle to actually think about how do we, whether it's antitrust law, whether it's rewriting Section 230, like how do we actually um, regulate Facebook in a way that will allow the company to still exist and provide us the services that we enjoy Mm -hmm. without all of the bad stuff. Yeah. It's endlessly fascinating to me, like the, uh, cause you know, I grew up in the, in the early internet boom, you know, I was on the internet starting like 1996 and oh my God, there's so much possibility and anything can happen on here. And I came to realize, oh, that feeling was just because it was it's an entirely new area and there were no laws about anything. And now we've been doing it for, you know, 30 years and we're starting to realize, oh, looks like we kind of need some laws (laughs) about (laughs) just like you do with anything. You know, we uh, invented railroads and after a while we need some laws about the railroads to make sure shit doesn't go really bad. Um, We're sort of in the same place again. uh, And. To a certain extent, it seems like Facebook and these other companies are trying to pretend that we're not and trying to like stave off the inevitable as long as possible. So, no, 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 we'll we'll do it. We'll fix it. We'll fix it. But unless they actually do, which they seem un- incapable of, yeah, we're gonna need to we're gonna need to like have a conversation about it and figure out. Okay, we can't have people trying to undermine our, our elections. We can't we can't have a company yeah. whose entire business model mainlines the distribution of misinformation about public health and democracy that we can't have that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the point that you made about like when the internet first started, people were like, this seems fun. And they didn't really (laughs) like that's, that's actually so true because um, at the time, like the people who were founding the internet, their philosophy was that the virtual world existed separate from society and Mm -hmm. therefore there didn't need to be rules of the road, you know, like it's a virtual environment. It's a sandbox. Whatever happens in this universe is not going to affect the physical world. And obviously that's become increasingly uh, untrue. Like we've realized that that's just a faulty assumption. Yeah. 
and that the virtual stuff that happens then translates into physical world things like a genocide or like the mm-hmm. capital riots. And those are um, very legitimate reasons now that I think lawmakers are finally like it's finally a concrete enough thing that lawmakers are like, oh, yes, this is re- territory that we need to be regulating. Yeah. And, you know, we have a, a culture and a, a constitution of, of free speech in America. And we, we need to you know not be interfering with that in in a way. But there needs to be a balance here between, uh, you know, making sure that we're not. Uh, programmatically causing bad things to happen um, while, mm-hmm. you know, people can people can say their piece, but that we're not like pushing harmful uh, misinformation to people. Um, does did you get a sense in your reporting that people at Facebook actually care about this issue? Like, do you feel Mark Zuckerberg cares about it? I think that's probably a separate question from, <laughs> you know, do you feel he cares about it? And do you feel that like, you know, there are folks working in on this problem at Facebook who are like, God damn it, this is a real problem, but my hands are being tied here. Yes, I think there are a lot of people that really care and whose hands are tied. Um, it's interesting because I think there are sort of like three profiles that I've sort of found of the type of person that works at Facebook Um, which is, I think like an endlessly fascinating question is like, why do people work at Facebook in the first place? And one of the, one of the categories is like people who genuinely believe that change can happen more effectively from the inside. And there are a lot of people at Facebook that, that very much believe that and, um, are working really hard to try and change things. But then many of them ultimately leave because then they become cynical and realize that they're not actually changing things from the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) with the question of like whether Mark cares about this, I don't, I don't think he doesn't care about this, but I think like the way it's been described to me is that Mark is just in general, very libertarian and is much more nervous about Facebook being quote unquote, an arbiter of truth than, um, than the fact that there's rampant misinformation like i think it's more terrifying to him to give facebook the powers to arbitrate truth than to just leave it in a bad state yeah. um, and so it's not that i i don't it's i don't think he actively doesn't care um it's just his value system is sort of different from many other people in society but in my view this is that's an abdication right that they you know, these companies, Facebook more than any other, but also Twitter and and these other companies, they have a belief that is incorrect that they are not media companies. They see themselves yeah. as platforms where anybody can post anything and like, oh, no, you can say what you want to say and then people will see it and we're just the pipes. But they're not. They've they exert massive influence. In fact, they are the only ones who exert any influence on what people see. I can post whatever I want on Facebook. The only thing that determines who sees it is Facebook's algorithm. And that is Mm -hmm. not in substance different from NBC in 1970 deciding who sees what on television. And Mm -hmm. the difference between NBC in 1970 and Facebook today is that NBC, the people who ran it believed that they had influence over what the public saw and they gave a shit about it. And part of the reason they gave a shit was the government was like, you're going to lose your license to broadcast unless you do this in a responsible manner. There are a lot of problems in the way they did that gatekeeping too. back then. There are a lot of problems with the media environment then. But 
That is the analogous uh, you know, position that Facebook is in today, but it's on a much, uh, like a 10 times bigger scale because they're yeah, global exactly, exactly. and people are spending <laughs> a lot more time on it. Like the, uh, my view of all these companies got a lot more simple once I realized, oh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, these are media companies, but the difference between them is they get all the media for free. People just post it. <laughs> they don't have to pay anybody, right? Yes. They just yep. get it all for free. But they're acting like that means that they don't distribute it to the public and they are therefore responsible for it. They're like, oh, no, the person yeah. who posted it did. But, uh, yeah, it's like a fundamental misunderstanding of what the fuck it is they're doing. <laughs> Sorry, I'm yeah. just I'm I'm on a rant here. <laughs> what sort of reaction did you get to this piece? I mean, this was a fair, fair bit of a blockbuster, I feel like when it when it came out. What was the uh, did you get a reaction from? Facebook to the piece. I'm curious. I did. Um, <laughs> so the CTO of Facebook started responding to me on Twitter. Really? And yeah. And his first response, which I thought was really funny, was I'm afraid that this piece will deter, will will convince people that AI bias is not an issue and deter them from working on it. Um, and there was this other Twitter user that then like later commented, it's really weird that your piece calls out the fact that Facebook is using AI bias as a fig leaf to cover up the fact that they're not doing anything else. And then in response to that, the CTO was like, but we're doing AI bias work. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yes, correct. Like that is very (laughs) weird. Um, but it's sort of, I, I mean, speaking with, with some former employees, um, at Facebook, executives only engage on things when they feel genuinely threatened. So it was, mm-hmm. it was basically a confirmation to me that a, that this I'm, I'm onto something like mm-hmm. the CTO actually felt the need to respond and B, he wasn't able to say anything that undermined my reporting. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of just reinforced the fact that like, it is true. <laughs> yeah. That's, Weird trend right now in, uh, you know, the covering of these companies. Same thing happened to Amazon where <laughs> the executives start replying to people on Twitter and saying, well, that's not true. And then it's quickly shown to be true. The peeing in bottles thing on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Like someone needs to tell these executives, stay out of your mentions. Like you don't need to, <laughs> you don't need to get into it on Twitter of all places. You got, I thought they were. Why, why didn't they post? Why didn't they f- Facebook you about it? Why didn't they tweet at you yeah. about it? Yeah, it's also interesting. I think they did. Um, so the CTO also like did an interview with Casey Newton afterwards to try and like present their narrative in, a, in like a more formalized, respected, like journalistic way. Um, and the narrative that they then painted there or the CTO painted there was, oh, like I was, I was so upset at this piece because the one, like if, if you attack any team at Facebook, please don't make it the responsible AI team. Um, and it was like a complete mischaracterization of my piece as well, where I was like, I actually did not attack this team at all. I talked about how they it was composed of people that are genuinely trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. but whose hands are tied. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's it's been interesting to just see the way that um, in the aftermath, like the way that Facebook's PR machine works, which which is sort of like part of my story is that like th- they have this very carefully crafted PR machine that tries to um, mislead the public 
Um, and it, it was just another demonstration of that. Yeah, they were they were trying to sell you a specific story of what it is that they were doing, of we are taking this problem seriously and the problem is AI bias and look at what a great job we're doing. And mm-hmm. you saw through that and told an actual story, <laughs> did your job as a journalist, told an actual story about what's going on there. <laughs> And they weren't happy about that is what it sounds like. <laughs> what happened? They were very unhappy. They were very unhappy. And um, <laughs> yeah, I, I and and it's interesting. I had like a lot of other journalists reach out to me afterwards um, who had also covered Facebook and sort of faced these things. And they were like, yeah, this is just a pattern. Like Facebook will give you lots of access and then be extremely displeased with you when you don't actually write their exact narrative down on paper. Um, and I don't know if that's because Facebook is aware that it's doing that and just that's part of their PR tactic or if they fundamentally misunderstand what independent journalism means. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, it's just like the nature of covering that company. It reminds it's very funny, this memory flashback to my head, but a scene from a Saved by the Bell episode that always stuck with me is, I, this is completely random, but like there's this scene where Jesse Spano <laughs> is interviewing Principal Belding for the newspaper and he's like, thinks it's going to be a really nice interview and she goes like, what happened to the missing petty cash that was uh, siphoned from the school budget? And he his face gets really sad and he says, I thought this interview was going to be about my pet turtle, Pokey. And and for some reason that <laughs> st- stuck with me. That's what happened. They were like, we thought it was going to be about AI bias. We didn't know you were going to talk about the real problem at Facebook. We thought it was going to be a nice interview. In terms of how this issue and this, you know, specific story that you wrote about Facebook plays into the, you know, the larger questions, you know, among other internet companies, among AI in general, like, how do you, how do you feel about that? Are there, are there larger issues that this points to? Yeah, there's been this ongoing conversation, um, within the AI community, which is the community that I, that I, I cover and sort of live and breathe, um, about, you know, that we're building this very powerful technology, where we're just beginning to see some really dire unintended consequences um, of it. And yet like this space and our understanding of this technology is like very dominated by the tech giants, Mm -hmm. because in order to even build this technology, you need a lot of resources, both a ton of cash to actually hire the people who have the expertise to build this technology, as well as a ton of computational power, like massive computers, massive servers that can actually um, crunch the data to then train these algorithms. And um, right before my piece published there, there in December of last year, there was this whole fallout around Google and their AI efforts um, and their what they their equivalent of their responsible AI team, which is called the ethical AI team. Um, and there there was basically um, a lot of reporting came out that Google actively censors their ethical AI team's work and mm. other um, researchers work at the company that has criticisms of the technology that Google is building. And so then, like, when this, my piece came out, there was sort of this additional evidence that another, yet another tech giant is sort of, like, actively trying to distort our understanding of this technology and what it means to build it ethically, what it means to build it responsibly. Um, And and even when there are good, well-intentioned people at these organizations that are leading these efforts, 
they either get fired or <laughs> they're completely hamstrung and can't make the progress that they that they need to make. So I think um, to me, it sort of demonstrates for for like the scientific community and for regular people who where algorithms are affecting a lot of things in our lives now. Um, there's a little bit of this scary thing that's happening behind the scenes that um, we don't actually have full transparency into the way that this technology is going to shape us and the way that it could harm us because of, of um, the very carefully, closely kept research um, and communication about this research yeah. at these companies. I mean, AI, the nature of the research, uh, the nature of the, uh, you know, what it produces is often, you know, al AI algorithms that produce results that are surprising to the people who made them because of how opaque, you know, AI can be. You train an algorithm and you find out what it does. And so mm -hmm. there's that level of opacity. But then there's the fact that all the places that are working on AI are places like Google, Facebook, presumably Apple, Microsoft, mm -hmm. the Department mm -hmm. of Defense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. These, yeah. These massive organizations that are working on AI for a very specific purpose to maximize ad revenue, to kill people better. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm sure there's work being done at universities, but uh, you, you know, the fact is that like, Oh, Tesla is another example, right? Where they, mm -hmm. they talk a lot about here's what the AI does, but the way that they present what the AI does is very at odds with its actual purpose and its actual capabilities. You know, Tesla's an example mm -hmm. where they're, they've promoted this idea that, you know, fully self-driving cars are right around the corner. And then as soon as you look at what the cars actually do and what their technology that they're developing actually does, there's a huge gap there. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we're, they're promoting a certain idea of to the public. Here's what you should think of when you're thinking of AI. Um, mm -hmm. Elon Musk saying, oh, we should be worried about killer robots and I'll make sure we don't have them. Um, but mm -hmm. what is the actual development that is being done on these things is like behind the clo the most closed of all closed doors. It's being done by a couple of massive companies and organizations that, you know, have a very specific interest at heart and it's not necessarily societies. Yeah. And, and it's not just misinforming the public. It also misleads policymakers who are actually trying to figure out how to regulate this technology because there are very few people that they can go to that are actually independent researchers mm -hmm. not being paid by tech companies or employed by tech companies. Um, even in academia, there's like so much influence from these tech giants, Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, IBM. Uh, but, but they, you know, the, because this technology requires so much money and so many resources to develop, universities cannot actually fund it themselves. So they mm. have to seek funding from other places, aka the tech giants. And so for policymakers to actually get a good understanding of what is this technology actually and what should we be concerned about so that we can literally codify guardrails laws to prevent that. They yeah. don't they, they, like who are they talking to? It's like really hard for them to actually talk to someone who is not um, doesn't have that conflict of interest. Yeah. Well, what would you like to see happen around these issues, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Facebook or the broader AI, you know, culture community in general? I know you said it's above your pay grade to come up with 
what the actual policy would be, uh, you know, the federal policy that we would hope Congress would make. It's above my pay grade, too. But, you know, what would you like to see happen in the next the next year or two, you know, on a lower level that just would like improve a couple of these problems? Do you have any wishes or hopes (laughs) for this? So this is how I like to try to end the interview is to come up with something that what can be done. I think, okay, so this is like a little bit far flung from our conversation, but I think the thing that I would love to happen in the next year is if the Biden administration put like put up funding for AI research through the National Science Foundation, like through the the arm of the government mm-hmm. that is focused on basic science research and not defense and not like other other things like just put right. up money that ha- doesn't have strings attached. That's really focused on actually understanding this technology and the effects of it so that researchers can be independent and independently scrutinize this stuff without working for tech companies. Um, and I think then what I kind of assume will happen based off of my, my general reporting um, is we'll start to, we'll, our understanding of AI will start to shift pretty dramatically because we will start to have more people and more like papers being produced, more research being done that will actually show what this technology is and what we need to be concerned about. Um, And that then provides the scientific foundation for addressing all these problems that we're talking about, um, regardless of if they are or aren't at um, tech companies. Yeah, that would be the government taking the role in scientific progress that it traditionally has taken of like really studying the issue. The NSF is, uh, the politicians make decisions, but it has scientific leadership who would, who could be setting priorities. That would be a huge improvement. Absolutely. Uh, Well, my God, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about this and for doing the independent (laughs) reporting uh, that that pissed Facebook off. If you made the CTO of Facebook a little uncomfortable, I think that's probably a good day. And we can we can thank you for doing a service. I think at the very least, make them sweat. You want to make them sweat a little bit. I think think. so, too. And (laughs) so thankful for you for doing that and for coming on the show to talk to us about this and would love to have you back next time you uh, you know, blow the lid off. Of something. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you once again to Karen Howe for coming on the show. If you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, hey, please leave us a rating or review wherever you subscribe or go to factuallypod.com slash books to check out the books written by our past guests. Purchase one or two. If you do, you'll be supporting the show and you'll be supporting your local bookstore. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, Andrew Carson, our engineer, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. Uh, You can find me at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media. If you have a suggestion of a topic you'd like to hear on the show, shoot me an email at factually at adamconover.net. I do read your emails and it is one of the joys of my day. Until next week, we'll see you on Factually. Thank you so much for listening.